Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. Today, we're talking about the singular most important product of forest gardening, the food. We don't know about all of you podcast listeners, but the thing that brings us the most joy is sharing the unusual fruits and foods that we grow with friends and family usually a couple times a year during a communal meal. And well, tis the season for communal meals, no matter what holidays you celebrate. Listen in today for some tasty recipes to inspire you to get your oven mitts on and get cooking. Stick with us. So Thanksgiving's coming up. Yeah, holidays. Holidays are approaching. We're just here to talk about some of uh, some of our favorite recipes and some of our different experiments in sort of the forest gardening accoutrement. I feel like it all comes down to right now, like the whole year of harvesting and planting is like we're in the harvest season or we're ending the harvest season. And I feel like the holidays are like the perfect time to to use local seasonal ingredients because like the f- classic foods of the holidays are more are usually local and seasonal mm. as opposed to pretty much all the other holidays of the year. They don't really center around food as much. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Yeah, it's all about gathering and seeing people you haven't seen in a while and maybe showing off some of the cool things that you grew in your... Uh, well, I guess also, but usually that's people like with their summer garden. So, that, so it kind of brings you to the next level of plant nerdery if you can show up with your medlars or what, <laughs> what have you and say... Is your family open to your food creations? Well, yeah, that's it. You know, that's funny you ask that. No, um, last year uh, for for Christmas Eve, yeah, I showed up with a bowl of ripe medlars. <laughs> Did anyone eat them? Uh, yeah, no, it was... I mean, I will say that, like, you know, showing up with a bowl of seemingly rotten fruit is definitely a bold move. No, it's bledded. It's, it's bledded. bledded. It, but the thing is that they were already bledding on the tree, which is, like, something yeah. you don't know, totally always realize yeah, is that they will... I didn't realize that. They will bled on the tree. Um, and I harvested them... I harvested them at the absolute end of the semester, so only maybe, like, maybe, like, a week or two weeks before Christmas Day... Um, so yeah, I showed up with a bowl of medlars and they, t- you know, the specific cultivar was bread a giant and they taste just like brown cinnamon sugar. Wait, did you get to have some one here? Yeah, we tried it last year. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like apple, a little bit of applesauce, yeah. cinnamon, brown sugar, yeah, like applesauce. way, way better than I was expecting. Yeah, no, same. Yeah, I remember we talked about, or we had that tasting experience together, you know. So yeah, I mean, uh, definitely got some weird looks from family members, but they're, it's a big Irish family, so people... They, I don't know, they trusted me enough to uh, to try them. And then, I mean, I don't know. The, in previous years or previous gatherings, I brought toothache plant. Oh, you did? Yeah, it makes your, it's like the pop rock yeah. sensation. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I feel like How'd that go over? <laughs> uh, the, the, the parents liked it. The kids did not, which you'd think would be the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they have to... Uh... They, they just looked at me like I was a weirdo. They were like, why'd you bring what? But anyways. It hurts my mouth. Yeah, so, so today we're going to be talking about exactly that. Some of, the, some of the different recipes or some of our favorite foods to bring to a holiday party. I guess I'll probably start off. Go yeah. for it. I was trying to think of some of the things that are still like available to use in my garden. And one of those things is sorrel. It like, you know, we've had our, our first snow only a few days ago here in Connecticut which I know you don't know much about anymore living in California. I forgot what it, what snow is <laughs> after living eight months in the West Coast. Um, but yeah, so we had our first snow, but the soil is like completely unaffected. It's, you know, a really hardy perennial 
perennial vegetable, perennial green. And so last year I made, well, actually like, so the first thing you think of when you have sorrel is like sorrel soup. And personally, I tried making sorrel soup and it was okay. You know, there's plenty of recipes online for sorrel soup. Does it keep the lemony flavor when you cook it? See, that's the thing is I didn't really, I, the lemony flavor didn't totally connect. That's like the best part of sorrel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it tastes like a citrusy leaf because you make it with like a bone broth. So like really it, what you get is like this delicious soup, but it did not have like the sorrel attributes that I expected. Yeah. Then though, my friend who's Polish brought me some that her mom had made and it was like amazing. And it was like totally like it was like sorrel soup the right way because it's you know it's like an Eastern European thing, but I still wouldn't say that it was like super lemony. So I was trying to think of some other things to to make out of the sorrel leaves, and what uh, the ball ended up landing on was sort of a variation on stuffed grape leaves, kind Ooh, of. Ooh, very nice. Or stuffed dates, and we had medjool dates around, and I we, I think what happened is we just found a stuffed dates recipe that used uh, chunks of blue cheese. And the idea was that you, you know, did a, a bake on a, you know, a baking sheet with the dates and blue cheese and you drizzled honey on it. And the blue cheese and the honey would like melt into the date. And that sounds great. Yeah, it was, it was delicious. But then add the, the lemony flavor of the sorrel onto that. So I, what I we think that'd so, be pretty good. So it was it was amazing. It was like one of the best things I've ever created in uh, out of if you want to be extra local maybe you could do like a chinese date or something what we can you grow chinese dates in um in this climate what's the um sisyphus oh oh, so you mean jujubee jujubees yeah oh yeah we can grow those here i wonder if you could stuff i'm sure you can i think i've even seen those stuffed with walnuts like i've never had a like do they taste just like dates i've never had a jujubee before they are similar dates they look like dates i mean first off you can eat them like an apple like when they're green mm-hmm. and they're crunchy they're, they're just like sugar sweet no no acidity and actually those are a lot of people prefer that i think i might even prefer that stage because they're not ripe yet but they're full full of sugar mm. so they're actually great to eat mm. and then there's when they dry up they turn brown wrinkled they look like a date they're a little bit like more fibrous and chewier than a you know how dates are kind of like fudgy they're yeah. like buttery it's the best the thing about are. them yeah these are a little bit more drier a little more paper not i don't want to say papery but they have a, a little bit more coarse texture kind of like starchy almost. yeah uh, more just fibrous and sweet just okay. like if you okay. can imagine that i mean you, you chew them up and they're fine but um yeah not quite as like like uh umptuous as, as a date i guess maybe a good word but I mean, they grow so well, and they're cold hardy, yeah. and, and they're like, they're like salt. I mean, they're tolerant of urban conditions. You can grow them like in your yeah. hill strip, yeah. And you could so I've seen them stuffed before. Huh. Just uh, maybe that's a, a nice maybe with some blue cheese and sorrel and yeah. honey. That'd no, be good. yeah, maybe the, for the next iteration. No, totally. And just to sort of sum up that that idea, basically, you know, it was just wrapping or taking the dates putting the blue cheese in you could also throw in like some bacon or prosciutto and then just like a like a light bake and i can't remember if we wrapped the sorrel leaves around them first or not but one thing you do have to do is you have to de-stem the sorrel leaf by using a kitchen knife to take out the stem and then you want to have a pretty big sorrel leaf so the the it's like the garden sorrel and there's a specific cultivar that you can get from richter's in canada and it's just a non-flowering type that creates really big leaves so that's what i would if you want to try it i can't remember if we baked it with the sorrel leaves around it the first time when it worked out awesome but the second time i tried to do it it, i I did that and i put them in there 
And I was so excited because it's like, oh, this is like the most delicious creation I've ever made. And then I did it for too long and they came out and they were like really crispy and you couldn't taste the soil oh, leaf okay. anymore. So you want to be careful not to do that and like really like a, you know, you're just probably broiling them with the door open for like five minutes for the cheese just, to melt. Just a quick, yeah. quick blast. Because you don't want to burn the leaves. Well, I'll pass it back off to you. Give me uh, some plant knowledge, Man. some food knowledge. That one's good. That one's like something you could, you could serve at a, at a holiday party and people would be impressed. And I guess dried persimmons, hoshigaki, is something I wanted to talk about. And I guess that's equally as, as impressive, but it's just a, a single ingredient sort of thing. Hoshigaki comes from Japan. I, I wish I knew more about the, the background and the history of it. It's a traditional way of preserving the harvest of predominantly the Hychia variety, the astringent variety of persimmons. For those unfamiliar, there's the uh, astringent and non-astringent varieties, and there's even like subcategories, ones that will stay astringent if they're pollinated and ones that will only be astringent if they're unpollinated. Like there's just different combinations. Traditionally, they use the uh, Hychia variety, which is a astringent variety. Uh, so it dries out your mouth if you eat it too too soon. So the fruits will, let's see, they'll mature on the tree. So it'll be nice, have a nice color but they won't be ripe yet. They'll still be hard. So you have to uh, wait for those to be ripe before you eat them. But there is a way you can do something with them before they, they finish ripening. You can do the alcohol and the skin. Have you heard oh, of that? Well, no. I mean, I, oh, yeah, there's like alcohol and ethylene. There's ways to like yeah, it's like you fully take, ripen you can, them. Well, you can just take like regular like vodka and you just use like a, a needle or, you know, a syringe and then you just poke it and put in the tiniest little drop oh. and it eliminates the astringency. You've tried that? I, I just saw someone posting about it on Facebook. I haven't tried it myself, but um, a bunch of people in the comments were like, I did it and it worked. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I guess, I guess that, that, I mean, this is just hearsay, but. I saw it on TikTok. Yeah, no, um, but yeah, I mean, it, I don't know why the guy would lie, uh, especially with all those other people. The, and also for anyone who hasn't experienced astringency, it's like the feeling of like cotton mouth. Mm-hmm. Or, like, if you get, like, a, a face wash that's astringent and you feel your face tingling, imagine that inside of your mouth. It's not maybe the best experience. Yeah, no, it's pretty unpleasant. And I think that's the plants, the trees signal evolutionarily to, to tell the animals, hey, my seeds aren't quite ready yet, so don't eat my flesh. Or maybe maybe the seeds are ready, but, like, it doesn't quite want you to take the fruit until much later in the year. So whatever evolutionary reason why the tree would have that. But it doesn't let you eat it sooner than it's ready. So yeah, so hoshigaki is traditionally with the haichia or maybe some, there's, there's lots of other astringent varieties like the saijo or the chocolate one, which I got to try uh, this year. And so essentially the, the process is when you, after you've harvested all of your, your persimmons and um, this year, thankfully I can say I'm speaking from experience because I've, I've done this with store-bought persimmons before and kind of just as an experiment because like I only buy two at a time, so I would rather just eat them fresh. But when you when you harvest a, a persimmon tree, like they are loaded. Like this this thing just had panicles of a persimmons dripping off of this just unfertilized, unwatered neighborhood tree in, in Sacramento. Um, so I harvested a ton, as much as I could take. And you know, you can only eat so many. And you also like want to do something with them because if, if you just let them ripen up, they're all going to be ready at the same time. So, like, how can you preserve your harvest? And so you take a potato peeler, the first step. You grab the persimmons. Oh, and you want to, when you pick them, you want to leave the, the calyx, the dried up areas around the petals, the green top of a persimmon. You kind of want to leave that it's in a place. Ha- it's a little hat. little hat, yeah. You want to leave that in place and you hold on to it and you, you take the potato peeler and you peel off a layer well, you can even use a knife, but the knife will probably get off some of the flesh too, but either way. And at this point, it's like a hard 
like it's not like the persimmons that we have here where they're like soft and mushy like that's a hard yeah it like, has it has to be hard otherwise it's, it's like just, a pear kind of yeah it's 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 between a very hard apple and, a, and like a pear that's maybe starting to ripen you probably don't want to wait too too long after after it start getting uh soft you're removing all the skin basically take some time if you've got you know dozens of pounds of, of persimmons I mean, a lot of the work's already done, but there's a lot of ways to screw it up. And, you know, I've been doing this for maybe a couple years now. So I've, I've had a couple years of, of screw ups that I can share. So when you're storing the persimmon, you want to try to do it outdoors if possible. There might be a certain limit to the how cold you want to do it. But I know they do this in like Russia mm. and, and other parts of very cold climate parts of the world. So I think... Outdoors is best. I've tried to do it indoors and it gets moldy. Just like it's it's warmer and there's like things floating around and it's just not as as clean as environment as outside. I mean, outside there's going to be contamination too, but it's going to be colder and I think it's just a better way of doing it. And also like if you just put the persimmon on a table or a, you know a surface of some kind, what's going to happen? Like the the area where it's touching the table, that's going to start to rot because it's really super humid and moist and it never dries out. So either you're walking out and turning your persimmons every day, which is a hassle, which you're not going to do, or uh, you can hang them up on on a, on a string. And that's kind of traditionally how if you if you Google search Hoshigaki, you see these beautiful like garlands of of dried persimmons. It's it's very uh, I mean, it's like orange and and brown and it's black. Like, it's like an ornament. Yeah. Yeah. It's very seasonal looking. And so you can you can basically attach either, either end. That's why you leave the, the sepals or the calyx is on the fruit so you can tie the string around it either end and then you hang that string with two persimmons on either side over like a pole or something and you can just kind of do that or you have you even seen it like a you take a string that's strong enough and you hang like along the string maybe every six inches another persimmon you have a whole like another garland you can just like tie that up on your porch and give give your uh your neighbor something to look at and and yell at you for maybe they'll maybe they'll be into it i've also seen people who pierce them like a screw and they would like push the screw into it and then tie the screw around and then to hang it yeah yeah to hang it so what's the deal with that you don't you don't like just you don't need to pierce it that's just like an easier way to hang it well yeah so if if you have the the calyx on there you can just wrap the string around that and you don't need to pierce it and I don't know if that's better or worse or the same for the preservation of it. Like, is it gonna is that hole gonna allow contaminants to get in and like make it rot? Uh, maybe not. If if, uh, if your friend's doing it and finding success or the person you saw. Um, but anyway, so you you hang it up and the amount of time it takes can can vary from. Uh, there might be a more precise amount, but it kind of varies on your humidity and the, the temperature. Uh, I've done it for. You know, I'd say like at least a month, and that's what I find the best for this. But I think other people go for a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. But what happens is, as time goes by, whether it's whether you want to do it every day or every week, uh, to break up the pulp on the inside, you got to go around and massage the fruit occasionally. So it's almost like the Kobe beef beef of fruit. And so you're massaging the fruit, and that's breaking up the pulp. That's drawing out the sugars. And allowing the drying process to happen faster and so by the end of it you it's this coolest thing it's like it looks like it's been dusted with powdered sugar like it, all these sugar crystals are surrounding the outside 
And I'm not even sure, like, chemically why that is, like, why mm. the sugar gets drawn out in that way. Maybe it's just part of the part of the drying process. It's kind of beautiful, I think, and extremely tasty. So after the, you know, the four to eight weeks is up, you can remove the, the persimmons and, and eat them. And they, you might even be able to sort, store them for longer. I think after, you, after they're done drying, you can keep them in the freezer. You can keep them in the refrigerator for a very long time. I don't even know how long. But it, it, you just want to make sure they stay dry because as soon as they get wet again, they're going to be super perishable. Or if they get like in a humid environment, they're going to they're going to rot. But yeah, you can make you can you can slice them. You can eat them out of hand, which is good too. Um, I I've had 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 them frozen, which is really nice. It's like a frozen treat. It's a strange if you've never had dried persimmons. It's a strange dried fruit because you're used to what kind of dried fruits like. Mango or what you buy Mango, in the store. Raisins. Banana maybe. There's like a there's sugar, there's starch, there's acid, there's like all these different flavors. But with, with persimmons, it's like straight up sugar. Like it's, it, you. there's a little bit of flavor there, but it's really just sugar and texture. And it kind of has a gummy texture too. Mm. So it's the closest thing I've found to candy or like gummy bears or something mm. in the in the fruit world, in the dried fruit so really nice, I would say if you're going to buy high chia or astringent variety persimmons, because again, remember there's the non-astringent ones, like the fuyus, they're more round, they look like a kind of a flat tomato that you could eat at any stage. You can eat them crunchy and you can even take slices and just immediately throw them into the dehydrator. And I don't know if that's t- technically hoshigaki or if it has to be the astringent variety, but that's the other option is to, to go with the, the fuyus. But Regardless, if you're going to buy the astringent ones, the like the high chias, you buy them in around this time of year, like Thanksgiving, and no, eat them November-ish, at yeah. eat them at Christmas. Buy them in Thanksgiving, eat them at Christmas, because that's how long it takes for them to ripen, and it takes about that long, you know, for them to ripen, uh, even if you've you've peeled and dried them, uh, as well. So it can, uh, it's not for the impatient, but if you have a lot of them, it's it's a good way to preserve the preserve the harvest. Oh, that sounds like a perfect sort of holiday treat kind of uh also just like i imagine the the ornamental side of it where it's just like hanging from your uh the front of your house it's a good conversation piece i mean here on the the east coast uh we don't have nearly as many asian persimmons although i will say that i was lucky enough to harvest one or two fallen persimmons from the nikita's gift that's on campus Ooh. at umass i bet you could do yeah i bet Shigaki you with even just american persimmon too well with the american pers- well with american persimmons i'm not sure how that would work out because they you know most of the time when you're eating them they're almost rotten in the first place but you're right in terms of the, they are astri- they're an astringent type. Yeah, if you could get them when they're hard, yeah, and peel them and dry them, it probably would work. That'd be that's an interesting thing to try out because yeah, I mean I've been stumbling into I guess not stumbling I've been going to arboretums and places that have, you know, American persimmons, and a lot of the seedling types aren't like amazing tasting. You know, they're mm-hmm. like even when they're like super ripe, like they like only really the cultivars, like yeah. are like stand out, and then the the seedlings are like okay. But on the topic of American persimmons, we have this book here, which is called Forage Harvest Feast, A Wild-Inspired Cuisine by Marie Villon. I don't totally know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And there's an entire section of the book specifically on persimmons, American persimmons. And there's there's several different recipes here for our listeners. I mean, definitely a, a book to consider. There's beautiful photographs. I mean, sunchoke soup with persimmon prickly ash oil <laughs> yeah, this is next level like. <laughs> like, and the photo just says like you know american persimmons as an ornament in the background of this 
I don't even know how to describe it. A, a soup drizzled with prickly ash and it looks it looks delicious. This is really what like foraging and temperate climate needs to elevate the craft and elevate the foods to a to a new level of like cuisine and not just like something you eat here and there when you can find it. Yeah, there's one recipe that's really really short from the persimmon section that I'm going to talk about here. So, it's it's a drink. It's been named Twilight. So, muddling jelly-ripe persimmons with cognac yields a very flavorful thick maceration. The shaken drink, lifted with spice bush and grounded with bitters, is the color of fall twilights before the long nights arrive hard and early. And so basically, to make the persimmon cognac, you just need four ripe American persimmons. It says to peel them and finely chop them, which I guess that that's a little questionable because if it, you can't really chop a ripe American persimmon. I wonder how I wonder how that's done. But whatever, <laughs> you know. Sounds messy. So, I mean, maybe this, although this is in the American persimmon section that was done with Asian persimmons. But either way, it's worth trying. Um, if they're peeling them, I mean, I, if I was going to do this, I would probably either do it with a super ripe American persimmon and then not chop it because it's going to be mushy anyway. Or, you know, it would be done with a store-bought persimmon and then you would peel it. Yeah, so four ripe persimmons and then a half a cup of brandy. And basically in a jug... You muddle the, the persimmons with the cognac, and after an hour, strain the cognac through a fine mesh sieve, pushing against the sieve to squeeze as much of the fruit out as possible. And then for, to make the cocktail, you just take three fluid ounces of the persimmon cognac that you made, mix it with one fluid ounce of bitters, and one fluid ounce of Spicebush Clementine Cordial, which is something that you will have to buy this book to figure out how to make. <laughs> or I suppose you could substitute the Spicebush Cordial with something else. That sounds amazing. I, I know. Really now, want I want to, now I want to see what the spice book yeah, It's one of those cordial. recipe books that res- that refers to another recipe in one recipe. So you kind of have to... You're forced to just harvest things yeah. year round. Oh, here, here it is. Spice bush clementine cordial. Well, I'm sure you could substitute the spice bush for something else. This, this seems no, like... No, you have to use spice bush. <laughs> Five ounces of dried spice bush fruit. That's really exciting. Well, anyways, pick up the book and you can delve into it. Uh, there's a lot of really awesome stuff in here. Over the summer, though, I did meet someone who was, or earlier in the fall, rather, someone whose favorite, like, his name is Henry Lappin, and he's up at Pioneer Valley Co-Housing in Amherst area, and he was just making spice bush breads and cakes and, like, all oh. these different things out of spice bush, which, you know, spice bush tastes like pepper. So I was thinking, like, you know, what, how, but, like, you can use the leaves, too, I guess? Really? There are so many unique ways to use the foods that are growing around us that we just don't know about yet, and it's cool to hear that of people who are delving into it and getting obsessed with one plant and how many different ways you could use this one plant. Yeah. And so twigs, apparently you can use the twigs, the leaves, the flowers and the fruit, which is wild. I just, I never knew. I knew that the leaves had like a spicy kind of deal that just weren't as intense as the fruit, but I didn't know you could actually Mm. make them into stuff. Okay. Do you want to tell us about your uh, pecan oil? Oh yeah. Well, so this is not a very this is another very simple one ingredient recipe because uh, I'm not a very great chef, so I focus on the things that I can't screw up. So I like making nut butters, and one nut butter that people aren't familiar with is I mean everyone knows peanut butter and almond butter, but pecan butter is absolutely delicious. And you can I feel like it's starting to catch on. Like have you seen it at like farmers markets around here? Like okay, so it's it's, it's definitely like um. I feel like people are, like, if you go to, like, Trader Joe's or something, you know, like, there's, like, sort of an obscure area where there's yeah. different nut butters. Yeah, so it's starting to get some recognition, but I tried making it, um, this was not recently, this was a couple years ago, but I want to make it again this year. 
because I've been so obsessed with walnuts the last couple years. I'm starting to, I need to change my nuts a little bit. <laughs> and so when I made it uh, previously, I think really simple recipe, but I think the trick is, and this goes for when you want to use almost any nut, is to give it a quick roast before you use it in any recipe. And that goes for walnuts, that goes for even almonds or um, but especially pecans too, because I mean, they're pecans are great raw. I mean, I like them just straight up raw. And if you want the maximum health benefits from nuts, you probably want to eat them eat them raw. But if you want the best flavor and the best kind of aroma of what you're making, give them a toast. But they, they want to coat them in a little bit of oil first. Uh, it can be olive oil or sunflower oil, uh, whatever you have around. And uh, just be careful not to burn them, because I've burned a lot of nuts before just giving them a roast in the oven. So lower temperatures, maybe like 300 instead of 350, maybe 10 minutes, give them a stir and another 10 minutes. And that's, that might be more than enough. So you want to check on them. And uh, yeah, I just put them in a food processor. When I did it, I don't know if it was just the nuts I was using. I was using ones growing in my backyard, which was really cool. I had this like hundred year old pecan tree in Nashville. That's Um, really cool. Yeah. Just rain pecans. It was the coolest thing. Um, So I just, I used that that tree. So I don't know if it was like the, the oil content, but I need, I did need to add a, a bit of extra oil. And I think I might've used olive oil or, uh, uh, now I would probably use something a little bit more transparent, like a sunflower oil. that doesn't taste like anything. You add a little bit of sunflower oil or, or whatever oil you have around until you get the consistency of, of a nut butter. You kind of have to take it out of the food processor or take a spoon and like scrape it off the sides a bit. Uh, it, it takes a minute. It takes maybe 10 minutes to, to fully get into consistency you want but after that it's, it's amazing it's it's so jam-packed with flavor and very rich and it has a natural sweetness you can put some honey in it if you like a sweet sweet nut butter uh, but it doesn't even need uh, much sugar or sweetness because it already has that like natural pecan pecan flavor to it um, and i would put it on on breads i would put it in smoothies just anywhere you use peanut butter it, it's fantastic and a great topper for anything. So not a not a very complicated, fancy recipe, but something that, that I like around the holidays. It's, yeah. it's super seasonal. No, you could definitely... I mean, I imagine you could probably do that with, like, hickories, too. I don't know what... Oh, it would it'd be, be delicious with hickories. Oh, my God. Like, I've like never a, tried that. Like a shag bark or something, or... They, they, don't t- they don't last long enough for me to put them in a nut butter, <laughs> so I'm just eating them straight out of the shell. Yeah. No, hickories I, almost have, like, a maple syrup taste to them, like right out of the like just raw which mm. is something you kind of get with pecan but like you get it even more with hickory yeah. oh, hickory nut butter jesus yeah i want to try that no i feel like uh I, I don't know i don't i feel like hickories especially shagbark hickory are just like the most undervalued nut tree mm-hmm. native nut tree in our uh, western culture maybe we try a hickon next yeah hickon nut butter although i from jesse markson who we interviewed last year talked to told me uh one time that they don't apparently fill very well as well, they some, don't yeah you know. hark we had like a collection of hickons it was, yeah. it was unbelievable just like you're walking through these like you know 40 year old orchards of hickon trees all these different varieties just old relic types um mixed in with regular hickories too and regular and maybe some pecans and yeah you'd find some that had nuts in them and some of them would be huge like i yeah. think i gave you yeah one of the nuts. i still have them yeah yeah they're the, so one of the they're like they fit in the size of your palm they're yeah i think like, like a burlington or uh, some of the other hickon varieties i can't recall there's a lot of them or well, there's not that many but there's too many for me to remember but yeah they're much bigger than a pecan there's they're probably like the size of like i don't know like like three two or three inches long but the, yeah every one of those was empty yeah and so yeah i, I wouldn't like that if i 
a few grew yeah, a tree 40 for 30, years yeah, 40 years 20, 30 and, years yeah that's a bummer and it's and it's empty so yeah you just grow pecans it's, it's <laughs> or oh yeah well even more than i mean for hickories i mean shag bark I, I think is one of my favorite trees just because of i mean it's shaggy bark it's a beautiful tree and the end has got a wonderful habit and but no there's selections of shagwark hickory that have been named like granger and then lorraine which is a seedling of granger pretty hard to find but if anybody's like interested in growing hickory trees and their landscape to then make these uh hickory butters those are those are some to look out for and what did what did you learn this year as far as growing these from seed and one of the dangers to um, watch out for do not entrust <laughs> your nuts with a uh with someone else and uh go away for a month and come back to find them all eaten by rodents mm-hmm. yeah you need to really protect your you can't just plant these in the ground and even when they're in a greenhouse it, with uh people who take care of them and water them many times a day or several one or two times a day it's funny, I actually had to put up a sign saying, like, do not overwater. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, they just, it's their job just to water plants. It was like plant daycare. So I really thought that these nuts were, like, going to be trees when I came back, and they're just holes in, you know, in cups of soil. So thank you for uh, <laughs> the Mouse traps. Yeah. Mouse traps are your friend. It was actually probably um, chipmunks, I think, really, that got them. Because I've seen chipmunks in that greenhouse, but I've never seen a mouse. But anyways, moving on. This will be the last thing that we talk about here. I am also not an incredible chef, but one thing that I do make well is risotto. It's not that, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to mess it up, you know? Actually, well, actually, some people have a really hard time with risotto because it takes a long time to make. You have to constantly stir it. You're constantly adding the broth. And my favorite thing to make is mushroom risotto. At my folks' place during, you know, 2020, I was planting all sorts of stuff over there. And I inoculated a pretty large bed of wood chips with wine caps. Yeah, three years later, in terms of seasons, I mean, it's 2022, and I planted in 2020, so technically that's two years. But in terms of, like, summers, it's been three summers. And the wine caps go crazy in the fall. And so they've been harvesting, like, anywhere between eight ounces to a pound or a pound and a half of wine caps every day, starting in, like, September up until the leaf drop, like a few weeks, you know, like maybe like mid-November they or early November, they stopped harvesting. And that was only because the mushrooms were covered in leaves. So they, for, up from the sugar maple that they're under. Yeah. So it's not like they weren't still fruiting, but they just couldn't get them. And That's it was just epic. like too many wine caps to know what to do with. So my mom and my dad ate plenty of mushrooms and all sorts of different meals and processed them into generally what you do is you just kind of make a sauce and then you freeze it. Or you can even just like do a quick saute and then freeze it. But mushroom risotto is one of my favorite things. And usually you just get like the sort of the, you know, the brown mushrooms you buy at the store. That's generally what you throw in there. Um, But yeah, wine caps work just as well. I mean, wine caps taste delicious. The only maybe negative is aesthetically it makes the risotto brown when you serve a brown risotto to someone. If they're really snobby about having their creamy risotto look like a sort of light tan color. It's no longer that color. The sort of um, get over it. Yeah, no, I mean it tastes delicious. But when I when I told that to my brother, he was like, "Ew, brown risotto," and I was like, "What's your problem?" An extra level to this, for those of us who um, are also nut nerds, is you can make a mushroom and chestnut risotto. You could just go to the store and buy some sweet chestnuts that were imported from you know uh, Europe or whatever. But hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you're nerdy enough to have a friend with a chestnut tree or a chestnut tree of your own or know of one planted nearby. And a few months ago, you went out and you harvested some 
And right about now is, is around the time that the stores are running dry. They don't last forever. You know, chestnuts don't have like an amazing storage capacity. But if you put someone, if you process them and they're still in your fridge and you don't know what to do with them, this is a great use. So basically what you're going to do is you're going to make risotto like you would normally where, you know, you do the mushrooms on the side, you kind of cook them down, you're stirring the risotto, you're adding your broth. And then at, like towards the end, you add your mushrooms the, the chestnuts, after they've been either boiled or roasted in the oven, you're just going to peel them and then chop them really to whatever size you want. The recipes that I saw had just like them halved, but really I think that more of a quartered size would be better. Mm-hmm. And then uh, personally, the, the, what I, you know, the chestnut for me brings like a sweetness to the risotto, but I was sort of lucky to harvest the chest, the uh, were Chinese chestnuts that I harvested from at this plantation in Connecticut where there's a ridiculous amount of chinkapins planted nearby. And so my hypothesis, I mean, we, we harvested from some of the chinkapins, but my hypothesis is that the chinkapins provided a sweetness to the Chinese chestnuts because I've had Chinese chestnuts before that are like just kind of starchy. They're not super sweet. Mm. And they vary a lot. Yeah. You know, like it, even like early on, I remember like really far back in our podcast history, I was like, oh, Chinese chestnuts aren't as good because they don't taste as good. And you were like, what do you mean? Like, it's just blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I had some Chinese chestnuts around them that just were not, like, amazing. They didn't knock my socks off. And now these days, I've had ch- Chinese chestnuts that were, like, super sweet, like candy. Yeah, we did, uh, when I was at the Center for Agroforestry, there was some research on uh, different cultivars and their different, like, sensory uh, characteristics, like aroma color and flavor and so we did a lot of taste tests and yeah you'd it'd run the gamut like some of them tasted just like corn like sweet corn yeah like so sweet starchy some of them were dark and like caramely almost and another ones after especially after tasting those first two would be almost like no sweetness and almost a little bitter like a dry bread yeah and th- but these were all like known cultivars yeah. for production for nuts so it's like if i tried that one for the first time i'm like oh i don't really like chestnuts yeah. very much i like the sweeter ones yeah um so yeah i mean it, i guess that you know in terms of like what this dish will end up tasting like it really does rely a lot on what ch- what your chestnuts taste like because they'll yeah. be a big part of the meal that tastes that like the flavor will really be there and also, obviously, you're, you're, you're throwing in a lot of Parmesan, and the Parmesan is going to um, make that creamy risotto. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. It's just an easy thing to make. It's not it, – anyone can make risotto an easy dish to bring to a family gathering. So, so yeah, that's our, uh, that's our little rant, unless you have any other last – No, that's it for me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, now I'm inspired to make a bunch more recipes for, yeah. for Thanksgiving and, and other holidays. Yeah. Well, hope everyone enjoyed, and if you have anything to share with us, we'll probably throw a post on Instagram closer to the holidays, and we'd love to hear what sort of plant nerd recipes you got. You, everyone has. So. Yeah, let us know your favorites. All right, until next time. <laughs>